This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. We're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Jolene Voles. I'm your current Secretary Treasurer of the SDPA. I will be the incoming President-elect come July 1. I have the pleasure of introducing our next panel of our Dermatology PA colleagues. Um, the leader of the panel is going to be John Notabartola, who is past president of the SDPA. We also have Casey D'Amato. She believes strongly in leadership and entrepreneurship. She is the president of Certified Physician Assistant Consulting and CEO of a successful startup skincare company, ARL, which I'm proud to say I sell in my office. Um, Kirk Gaudier, who is a practicing PA in a large single specialty group that includes three Mohs surgeons, three dermatopathologists in Tyler, Texas. He has lectured at both the SDPA and AAPA meetings. And then John Roddick, a former U.S. Marine. Jason, sorry, I knew that. A former U.S. Marine, I can't read my own writing is what the problem is, and who also served in Desert Storm. Thank you for your service. And he's... He's a PA in his second career choice, and he's loved dermatology from the start. He has been in dermatology for 10 years and considers himself a businessman first. Thank you. Hi, how are you guys doing today? We're gonna uh, structure the panel. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Jolene, for the wonderful introduction. Uh, we're going to structure the panel today, um, breaking it up a little bit, and then holding the questions until the end. So please, if you have any questions, uh, write them down. Um, but we are going to start uh, right off. Uh, do I have the clicker? You have the clicker. Go ahead and hit advanced slide. Okay, so there's our panel members, uh, and that is the order in which we will be presenting. So we're actually going to start right on off with Kirk. So, uh, Kirk, the floor is yours. Well, um, I usually like to entertain a little bit. I like to make things fun and energetic. But let me tell you, it's probably going to be the worst 10 minutes of your life that you'll ever get to spend with me. rules. Yeah, sorry. So. So we're going to maybe even uh, ask a couple of questions to you, but um, we're going to hold some of the answers and some of the interaction until the end. So, um, so this way, and we're going to try and keep each of our pre presentations short so we have plenty of question time. So, sorry, Kurt. All right, Matt permits it. Just by a show of hands, can you tell me who's heard of Matt Some people, who has never heard of this? I'm just curious. Okay, get ready. All right, I can't get that one very good. There's a lot of words. In January 2015, Congress passed the Medicare Access and Chips Reauthorization Act of 2015. It was meant to shift from a volume-based to a quality-based performance standard. This replaced the Medicare Sustainable Growth Rate that replaced the Medicare Volume Performance Standard. So basically, this is an experiment of payment. I have never, ever in my life, and I ever, I hope never, ever to do this again, spend more time on a lecture and still, still feel incompetent. Uh, I didn't call my congressman. I'm not kidding you. You didn't call me back. <laughs> <laughs> so, the macro uh, is this 
imagine, you know, this bill that back to these two different payments from Medicare and Medicaid. There's either this MIPS or an alternative payment method, which is more stringent. CMS estimates that MACRA will cost the healthcare industry up to $1.3 billion. You don't have to participate if you uh, make less than $30,000 in Medicare charges or you have less than 100 unique Medicare patients per year. They thought that we have somewhere about 642,000 uh, physicians be you know, involved in this, but it's dropped down. They just recently sent out 806,000 letters to clinicians saying that they're not going to have to worry about macro for 217. But this is going to change. This is a treadmill that is going to be getting faster and faster, and we're going to have to jump on this. Okay, MIPS, the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. Data collection for this started in January until October the 2nd. It, you have to submit this data that they want before March 31st of 2018. Strong bipartisan, uh, you know, 92% uh, in the Congress, 90% in the House voted for this. And you're gonna start getting payment changes, okay, based on your information that you submit, up to 90% by the year 2022. This is kind of the carrot and the stick. Give us what we want, here's the carrot, don't give us the information that one minutes the stick. But when we treat people like donkeys, they behave like asses. And that is what's going to happen with this. How is it going to affect you eventually? It's going to affect all providers, including mid-levels. All patient encounters, okay? Not just with Medicare, eventually. You've got this 100-point scale that you're going to try to get as many points as you can to submit. Um, depending on your score this next year, what you do this year, you will have either a negative or a positive 4% uh, adjustment for 2019. Don't participate at all, negative 4. Do anything, you just stay the same. Uh, so then a partial year, 90 days, neutral, small incentive payments, but a full year, uh, there's moderate incentive payment, 4%. Those that uh, score 70 points or higher are eligible to split up to $500 million. But think about that 400,000 uh, clinicians that are gonna be doing this, we're gonna divide that up. It's, not huge numbers for your practice. So let's say I collect a million bucks. 66, this was one of the last uh, month, 66% of the Medicare patients, 4% increase, 26,400 a year, but then you gotta remove your percentage of that. So it's not, it's not a big jump for you, but the 9% does look a little bit better, that's for 2022. So these are the three things that are gonna make up MIPS for next year. 60% is this one part of five called quality. You've got advancing care activities, which used to be called meaningful use, which is basically, this is all trying to get people to get an EHR. It's all trying to get you on electronic health records, okay? Then you've got improvement activities, which is a new category. All right, quality. To get the max points, and this is where it gets really boring. I hate a lot of words on the slide, but there's no other way to present this. To get the max points, you need 20 eligible cases a year, six, of these measures are, uh, you know, have, are high priority, and you have to have one outcome measure. In dermatology, we only have one outcome measure, and I believe Dr. Rosen, maybe accidentally or on purpose, touched on it the other day. He was talking about we have to be using drugs that are going to get people with their psoriasis down to a certain level. So, to this outcome is for psoriasis, you have to have a PGA of two or less, or a PSA of 3% or less if they're on biologic and if you want to count that outcome measure, okay? Uh, you get an extra point 
for high priority measures, documentation of current medications, which is not that easy. How many people come in and they say, well, I want a temple. How much temple do I want? Okay, you can't document it. You can't justify this getting this measure unless you have the time, route, amount, okay, which is a hard thing, but there's the amount a lot of times. Uh, then there are 11 specific measures that are done. Uh, I say that. So we do a pain assessment, pneumonia vaccination, influenza screening vaccination. Let's say here's what gets crazy too, because the flu season starts between October and December. You have to see the patients two times. Okay? And then say, did you get your, uh, your influenza immunization? If they say yes, you met it. If they didn't, you didn't meet it. Even if they don't want it, even if you told them to go get it, you don't meet this quality. You don't meet this name by just telling them to go do their counseling. Same thing with the pneumococcal vaccine. See, melanoma imaging studies. If you get a chest x-ray on somebody who's got deep melanoma, or, you know, a, a significant, you know, thick melanoma, you just failed. Okay? They have to have some kind of symptoms of systemic spread. You can't just say, oh, God, that's bad. I don't right here. I think we need to go get an ultrasound, MRI. No, there has to be evidence of systemic spread or you don't need that quality right there. Let's go on to the next one thing, advancing care information. This is 25% of the chart. If you have an electronic health record system, if you have an electronic health record system, it has to be, you have to have a security analysis. It has to basically meet CMS guidelines, okay? You have to be able to e-prescribe. Uh, you have to, you have to have a patient access portal, and you have to be able to send a summary care and request or accept a summary care. Those five things right there are a must on this advancing care information. Basically, you have to have an EMR that's going to be able to do all that. Um, e-prescribing, yeah, that's pretty easy to do that. They provide the patient portal, okay, as long as they have 24 access to their chart, and then the summary of care is basically you're going to electronically transmit their case, their, their, um, their chart to a referring provider. And then you want to either request or take in electronically a chart from somebody else. Now this next one, view, download, or transmit, just means that the patient got on and they looked at their chart. That's it. So you have, and this, this is up to one patient, okay, one time, gets on the portal. They look at their chart, okay? And then this patient education, they read something about their education, which basically is going to be counseling, you know, a lot of times are, are, are uh, under the diagnosis. Uh, they, you can send them a message, they don't even have to read the message. Or they can send you a message under the secure portal. And that gets you another 10%. Then patient-generated health data. Let's say they go on and they change the prescription. Or they say, yeah, I'm not on this, I'm on this medication. Clinical information reconciliation. Let's say you get that uh, that case summary from some other physician. You go on and you make adjustments to the patient's chart based on outside information that was sent to you electronically. You just got that points right there. Immunization registry reporting. We don't do that. But that's another ten percent. So it's just a lot of it can be real simple or it can be extremely complicated if your if your EHR is not compliant with it. Improvement activities, none are specific to dermatology. These are going to be things that are like, uh, hey, do you smoke? Well, you need to quit smoking. You have to sit there and talk to them for three minutes about that to meet that, to meet that, that goal. Okay, hey, do you drink alcohol to excess? Yes, how often? You have to sit there and talk to them for five minutes about that to meet this kind of improvement activity. There's 92 possible activities. 
okay? If you're in a group, uh, you only have to do like two. It's just really confusing stuff. Now cost, that's not gonna come into play uh, until next year and replaces the value-based modifier. Um, but you know, this is another sticky thing. If you send everybody to Mo's, is your cost because you're referring people? Are you prescribing more medications? Is this cost? Is that going to ding you down 10%? Come, uh, you know, 20, 20? It's, it's vague still. Uh, so what are they going to do with this information anyway? After they talk about payment, you know, what are they going to do with it? What are they going to publish it online? Okay, a lot of people don't know this. But hey, inquiry minds want to know, right? You already can go and Google your name and find out a whole bunch of stuff about you. Do patients like you? Patients not like you? Did you send in a prescription? It's, you know, just, I got tired of writing all down. <laughs> right now, you can go to www.medicare.gov slash physician compare. Has anybody ever done this before? Kind of like a vanity search you've done it, yeah. It's not really vain, it's more like, oh my god, this stuff is how people, how the government is going to look at me, what the government is going to say about me. Right? I we can write that down because it's kind of fun to look at your own stuff if you can find it. It's there. Okay? And they say that Physician Compare helps you find and compare physicians and other clinicians enrolled in Medicare so that you can make informed choices about your health care. That's directly from their, from their website. This is what they want you to do with the information. They want you to compare physicians so you can make an informed decision because it's important to get accurate and reliable information on your physician, saying from the quote, and always check the site. They update it often. The last name that I had was from 2015. Okay? So not really up to date there, in my opinion. And the more stars, better. Just like everything else, they're going to have the same type of thing. Five little stars. And the information can be stuck with you, though. All right? This could be something that, let's say you're changing jobs, and you went from a group that's not participating at all, and then you're going to go to a group that does participate. Well, how's your MNIP score? I don't know how you're at. We didn't do that. Or, what if you have a really good score? Is that going to be a good thing for you to negotiate a contract? Maybe. Consider my example from before, okay? If you participated, you were 9% up in 2022. You decided to go, you go to a clinic who's not doing that at all, and they're reporting as a group, you just lost 18% of your money. That sucks. That's scary, right? So there's $118,000 that's not going to be coming to you. Alright. See up here at the top. I gotta do this. More stars are better. This is on the government website. Hey, it's from 2015. All right. Communicating biopsy results. I did that 62% of the time. Documenting ulcerations and uh, tumor thickness of melanomas. Ooh, only 23% of the time. I showed that to my pathologist and they just got a little bit pissed. They're like, we've been doing that forever. We've always did it. Why is it like this? I have no idea. Coordination of care with patients with melanoma. Basically, do I make sure that they come in every single year? Do I have a recall system? that they will come every year. I only do that 15% of the time. Following with patients with melanoma in their cancer, 75% of the time. Poor me. Now, I work with a pretty big group, and I'm anticipating that they are going to be very proactive on this, um, although when I talk to some of the compliance officers, 
we've got to put this thing together. I had to go and redo a lot of it because a lot of it was wrong. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm nervous how it's going to look. But how did another member of the group do up here? <laughs> oh, is that what you did? I searched you guys, too. Yeah, I even searched Dr. Rose and I couldn't find Screen for high blood pressure and fall up 43% of the time. He screened for unhealthy body weight 65% of the time. He gave flu shots 67% of the time. Make sure older adults got their pneumonia vaccine 80% of the time. Screen for colorectal cancer 75% of the time. Screen for breast cancer 83% of the time. I'll tell you what, I one. <laughs> that almost almost makes me look like a perv with the breast exam. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, right. I'm trying to figure that out. You, you don't know if you don't look. <laughs> I, apparently, <laughs> you can have a melanoma there. Yeah, that's right. It's part of your group. Your yeah. Your Ah, uh, Sutter. So yeah, so they put all this stuff together, but that's how that's what you look like to other people from the government's perspective, which is totally ridiculous. But that's what we're stuck with. So and irrelevant. It, yes, yeah, it has nothing to do with, hey, can this guy actually find cancer on you? Can this guy treat your psoriasis? Is he going to be good at, you know, with a good patient or for it? Nothing, nothing, it's none of that. Not most terrifying words in the English language are from Ronald Reagan. You might know, you know, know this. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> all right, so I hope you're all scared like I am. A little bit nervous about the future of this. So it was my pleasure to be able to write on this one. When, the, when our group was going to discuss the future of dermatology, I took the liberty to really kind of get the forecast, play a little Nostradamus a little bit. Um, you can see these tr on the trending um, kind of horizon of business models. Um, so, so I'm not taking gigantic leaps out there in the business model, but I see some of these things occurring, and I think they, they don't necessarily remain dangerous for us, but I think they, you have to be really trepidatious and cautious on what they mean for PAs, and some of these are even equally dangerous, in my opinion, for physicians. So, um, I'm gonna get these all three. So, what we're seeing as a whole and most of the numbers I'm gonna be providing you are a death of solo practices. And I'm not a fan of this, I'll explain why. Um, but what we're seeing is a trend to two types of business models, either derm clearing houses, 
where big corporations stem from all entirely one specialty. So multiple physicians, multiple offices. There are some as large as 100 plus offices throughout the Miami, extending throughout the southwest or southeast of the United States. But we're seeing more and more solo individual practices go by the wayside, and they're either going to these larger dermatology clearinghouses, or they're being sucked up into the multi-specialty groups in the big, big, you know, powerhouses like Kaiser, Sutter, for where Northern California is, um, Dignity Health, and whatever it might be in your locale. So why does this, why does this trend pose a potential danger to any one of us? Um, well, the first thing that it does is it takes the policymaking from dermatology um, on an individual level, on an individual patient level, and it starts normalizing it especially in larger groups. So it affects what you're able to do. It affects policies that how you manage patient care. And it becomes less focal to the knowledge that the actual dermatologist has and that you have. It actually starts mandating, you start getting a lot more mandates in those groups. We don't treat it that way. We don't offer this particular treatment because of cost or whatever the reason. Um, it's driven based on the fact that they think that it's more efficient which is the dumbest thing that I think any business normally thinks, is that the larger they get, the more efficient they get, and we know that not to be true. Um, but the way the government kind of promotes this is they start incentivizing these PQRSs and the MIPS and the MARC, you know, they, they start incentivizing and mandating principles so it only becomes easier. 62% um, of physicians independent in 2008, these are not for dermatology specific numbers, this is just uh, general, uh, in 2008, but only 35% in 2014. Let that sink in. The private practice is dying, and, and, and I think that's dangerous. Um, why is that important to the PA? It kills autonomy. Your contracts and your delegation, which was unique to your relationship to your physician. If your physician wanted you to do a surgery with a flap and felt you were competent and felt you were trained, they let you. If your physician thought you were capable of handling really interesting comorbidities based on your knowledge of uh, advanced disease states and dermatology, they let you. But in larger groups, they will sometimes dumb down those delegation services agreements to the lowest common denominator. So now what happens is that you could be brilliant. You could be the one studying. You could be the one that's really adept at cutting and doing things that you should be doing. But they're going to basically create policies on what dermatology PAs can do based on the lowest common denominator. That is extremely dangerous to the health of our profession and the value we provide to doctors and patients. Um, it kills the partnership. The doctor doesn't see you in a solo practice or in these smaller practice. The doctor, when you when you can create that relationship and the, and the doctor benefits directly, both financially and based, the doctor goes to France, disappears for two months, their practice still remains viable, their patients are seen, their, their patients are cared for, you provide an income as well. In a larger group, you become an employee, you become something that's just kind of in the way. And, I, and, and, and if you've worked long enough, You've been treated by that. You've seen that once or twice. If it's not you, it's been your friends, where you are now a second then. You're someone that's just kind of like, don't get in my way, I'm doing this, rather than that partnership, and I think that's dangerous. Um, 
The other thing that I'm worried about, which if most of you, if any of you know me from um, my passion, my passion is in contracts. So I do a lot of work with contracts for PAs. It's my passion, it's behind the scenes stuff. With independence, you allow for contract variation. I think this is very, very good for us. It's healthy. It allows us to negotiate our own worth. I've been to hundreds almost of business seminars and stuff, and they say you're rarely paid what you're worth. You're normally paid for what you negotiate to. And that's the value in understanding that you have value for a physician. But when you're in a larger group, I've seen them where they take all the contracts to a PA, and Kaiser is a perfect example, and other where it wouldn't matter how hard you're working compared to someone else, the contracts become standardized, they become normalized. It helps the very bottom, it helps the bottom producers because they get a contract that's a little bit more lucrative, but individually, your ability to excel in your craft and actually negotiate for something that's important to you, when it becomes a standardization model, you lose, you lose. And, I, and the irony here is that the physicians lose too. We're seeing this in Sutter. They are standardizing contracts across the board, including specialties. So now all of a sudden, the same thing that, that docs wrote us off for as PAs for, you know, well, this is what you guys get paid. They're now learning that that's what they're being told by the big organization. They want to get a lot of normalization between even family practice and specialties. They want to lower that, which of course then special, specialists like dermatologists, orthopedics, general surgeons are all of a sudden suffering. So they're seeing the same problem. Um, what are the benefits? I don't want to be all doomsday. Um, there is one benefit um, uh, that, I, that stands out, should stand out very quickly. And that is, is that you have job dependability. It's harder to get fired. You don't have to deal with a neurotic physician. You, if one just decides spontaneously just to be like, I don't like you, you're gone, um, you don't have that in larger groups uh, because there's a HR structure, there's a defense mechanism that allows a, a real angry moment to not create a job loss. So in, a, in essence, you have this dependability. Um, heaven forbid your, your physician uh, comes down ill, gets a cancer diagnosis, dies in a car accident, and just leaves. If you're in a single provider office, you're out of a job. So one of the benefits is contract stability. If you have kids and, and you, have, you're, you feel like you're rooted into an organization, uh, into a home base, and just knowing that there's gonna be a job for you day in, day out, that's helpful with large groups. Um, Couple things that are happening too is the rise of alternative payer systems. Um, what we're seeing is we're seeing a couple things. I'm gonna kind of get off of the business model for a sec. You're in, we are finding different ways to pay for dermatology care. So you're seeing two things. You're seeing direct payer cash-only uh, cash practices, which I find unique and very viable in the dermatology world. Um, we don't have anything that we do that is in a price point that seems bizarre for a cash-only system. So we're not offering a joint replacement for $74,000. We're not doing a mitral valve replacement for $125. One of the more expensive surgeries you would do on average might run about $2,500 or less. The most, you know, biopsy can be in the couple hundreds. So the fact is that we are seeing a rise when, when insurances are getting worse and worse and worse with higher and higher co-pays, there's still a lot of viability in dermatology with a cash-only practice because of that price point. Um, we're also starting to see a rise of concierge service. If you don't know what that is, um, let's say you're basically insured. 
but you're realizing there's a six to eight month wait to get to your dermatologist or to your family practice, but you can supplement your, your insurance by paying maybe 35, 40 bucks you a month or whatever the payer system be, and this grants you access now to see your dermatologist within 48 hours. It allows you to get, um, it sets up a care package, if you will, of services in and above your normal insurance. Does that make sense? So we're seeing those. Um, I'm gonna get through this pretty fast. I've kind of described this. This is kind of how concierge medicine works. You're basically paying a surcharge, like a membership fee for additional services in and above your medicine. The only problem I have with this, um, and it tells you it's targeting, I'm gonna tell you how I think that affects us. And it affects us similar to what Kirk spoke of, and that's the MIPS. And um, there's a growth of this at five to 8%, but why is this important? Because complex payer systems affect how to track your own income. So if the practice is generating another $100,000 annually or $400,000 annually based on a concierge service fees, how much is that attributable to the work or benefit that the PA is producing to the practice? And so if you're in a contract that's paying you a percentage or you're, or you're actively recruiting concierge, there's a way of kind of not getting credit for any of it. And the important part with MIPS is if you meet all the requirements, then all of a sudden your practice gets a share of $500 million, right? And that comes in on the back end, and that comes in off of your, the work of your, off your back. That comes off the work you're doing. And if you are working off of 25 to 35% of the collections you're generating, does that count as collections you're generating? So there's gonna be an, a lot of money coming into the practice that may not be directly related to you, but as a result of you doing your work. So, um, so I've talked about that. Um, why is the death of big solar, uh, sorry, solar practice is a big concern. Doctors aren't making the money. The administrators, and, the administrators and business people are. I forgot what resource I took this off of, but you wouldn't have to search very much. If you look at it, the average pay yearly for a CEO of insurance is making $584,000 annually. CEO of a hospital, 386, but the family physician is making 185,000. That's backwards in my opinion. It's not where it should happen. The people who are making money in healthcare are insurance companies and administrators. And that should tell you how and why we are heading down the slippery slope to still, that we are. The policies for affecting our patients are not coming from the people who know most about medicine. They're coming from business people who could care less. They're coming from business people that are only driven by red and black. And I think that that's dangerous. Um, to give you an idea of this curve, and this is my last slide, the dark red at the bottom is the growth of physicians relative to time from 1970 to 2009. What you see in yellow is the growth of administrators in that time frame. That should be scary. And when you get in larger, larger groups, it's telling you who's making the money, it's telling you who's making the decisions, and ultimately, the less and less control you have with your own life and your own career will affect your own happiness. And it'll affect your patient's own happiness as well. So thanks. Thank you, Jason.
All right, well, I'm going to discuss uh, the future of PA practice authority. Now, how many people uh, remember last year the AAPA sent out a questionnaire um, asking how we practiced, what, you know, what our concerns were? Uh, did anybody respond to that? Yeah, there was over 12,000 AAPA members who sent in responses, and what the AAPA did was they created uh, this idea of a new model of policy. Now, the AAPA always holds, for, for all the years of its existence, it has had a model policy that it hands to uh, state medical boards, and they would take that and use it as a model for their licensing. Well because of concerns that have been developing over the last several years, uh, they have really uh, had to redo things. And they even brought in uh, folks from all of the constituent organizations. Uh, SDPA was very active in putting this together. And so we came up with the optimal, optimal team practice. And uh, when it started out, some of you may remember seeing uh, stuff about the full practice authority and responsibility. Uh, that was scrapped and then moved to optimal, optimal team practice. Optimal team practice, it, uh, I'm just going to read you a little bit about it, enhances the ability of PAs to meet patients' needs by keeping PAs competitive. To ride on what Jason was saying, um, in corporate medicine, what we're seeing is you work for a company, a physician works for a company. Where is the uh, enhancement to that physician? Where there, where's their incentive to take you as a PA on as a potential liability, right? Their name has to be on your license. And what's happening in these larger corporations is they are leaning more toward uh, nurse practitioners because nurse practitioners are independent practitioners in 22 of our 50 states. So therefore, it holds less liability to a physician, and the larger groups are looking more at that. Um, now, what I'm talking about today is AAPA policy. It is not state law, and it is not a state law until it has been passed uh, by your state legislature. But it, uh, Michigan was the first one to do it. Uh, so uh, way to go, Michigan. And there are several others that have that practice authority on the table. So what it looks to do is to remove the need for a formal supervisory uh, physician and PA relationship in regards to your licensing. So uh, I don't know how many people live in states where you actually have to, there, there are some states that you actually have to present yourself to the medical board with your physician, in physically, yes. Uh, you, before you're even allowed to get your license. And everybody has to have the name of a physician before you can apply for your license. So you have to get hired, then wait three to six months in some states to get your license before you can start working. And so that limits our ability to be portable and have a, uh, you know, a, a decent career. If you get into a practice that you don't care for and you realize that three months in, well, guess what? You leave that, now you're unemployed for another three months until you get your license back with your new physician's name on it. So what they're looking to do, the, the new uh, 
optimal team practice means to PAs is we will no longer need, if it, if it is passed in your state, you will no longer need a supervising physician. Uh, it is, supports the establishment of autonomous state PA boards. So instead of falling under the medical board, there would be a physician assistant board for each state. That physician assistant board would then uh, do the licensing, regulation, and discipline because we know PAs. Um, right now in most states, it either falls to the medical board the DAO, and, or the DO board. Um, nurses, on the other hand, have a nursing board in every state. So, uh, also that we should strive for direct reimbursement rather than incident to billing uh, under your physician. When you have incident to billing, first of all, uh, incident to billing is actually really tricky to uh, obtain. But what it really means is that if you're billing incident to your physician, how can we look at data and track what PAs mean to the medical community? We become hidden providers because we are billing under someone else's EIN numbers. So by billing directly, do we take a hit? Yeah. 85% reimbursement from Medicare because my full body skin exam isn't as good as my physician's apparently. I'm only doing 85% of it. I think I skipped the palm soles and genitalia. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do the breast exams like, like Jason does or, or go digging around for colon cancer. I'm telling you. So, but, Listen out. But, so, so what it means to us, though, yeah, you take a hit financially, but in the long term, now we can say, look at what PAs are doing, how many patients we're seeing. Look at how, if the PA laws change in a state, how it will directly impact the practice in that state. Um, also, uh, that they're looking for, uh, the, uh, there was one big thing that had to be added um, that was, you know, uh, AAPA, House of Delegates, uh, they were adamant about this, is we reaffirm our dedication to a team-based practice that we were based upon. And that's why we were created, to become part of the healthcare team. And so we're not seeking the status of nurse practitioners. We are not seeking independent practice to go out and hang our own shingles. But what we're seeking is parity, especially in an evolving healthcare system. And we in, in the language of this, it actually uh, says that it reaffirms that collaborative physician and PA relationship, but the depth of that relationship and the amount of collaboration and supervision should be between the physician and the PA, not dictated by the medical board. Some medical boards allow one physician to uh, supervise four PAs. Some say eight. Some don't have a number. Some say two. What's right? Well, it's whatever that physician feels comfortable with, with their PAs. 
and we're trying to kind of make that a little bit easier to understand. Um, in many states, their new laws that they're trying to pass have stepped away from the requirement uh, for maintenance of a dash C. Okay, keeping that certification, removing the need for NCCPA certification for licensure, as long as you maintain your CMEs as dictated by that medical board, you can retain your license. And some of you may have heard that NCCPA's efforts lobbying against optimal team practice because of that. So, right to the NCCPA and tell them we pay them to maintain certification, not to lobby against the PA profession, because they're using your dollars to do it. Just my two cents on that issue. So what we see, that's what it means to PAs and physicians. What is it going to mean to the patient? Patients are going to be much more able to see us in areas where they can't. You know, if there's restrictions on, well, a PA has to be physically in the same building with their physician. Well, now you might be able to go out to a, a remote rural location for a day a week and see patients there. So it's going to increase the access of care for the patient. Um, and I covered how it really differs from independent practice. We're not looking to hang out shingles. Um, we're looking to uh, practice medicine as we are trained to. So should we? Should we do that? Look to be independent. Is there a right answer to this? I'm going to take Dr. Rosen's cue and say no. <laughs> there is not a right answer to this. But again, we were founded as members of the team. My opinion, um, this is a, the team uh, the uh, optimal team practice is a great move in the right direction that is necessary, but I don't see us looking to pull away from our physicians. I could not picture myself uh, not working with my physician. Uh, and she and I have only been working together 17 years, so. Um, uh, it's, it's, we have a great collegiate relationship. Um, advantages and disadvantages of this, you know, uh, we're going to be able to get hired by the corporations much easier. Uh, and it's not so much geared towards, because remember, this is the AAPA. It's not just geared towards us in Durham. It's looking at uh, the PAs who want to get the job out of school and can't get employed by Walgreens at their dock-in-the-box position because that requires a supervisory physician. So when you go to those positions, the small minute clinics, it's mostly nurse practitioners for that reason. So it's going to help with our numbers nationally. And uh, some of the obstacles? Well, um, we all know there are some physicians who still view us as a threat to their practice, that we're trying to take over the world. You know, I'm just trying to practice medicine. I'm trying to practice medicine at the level that I was trained to, uh, as we all should. I, I did it on this side. I did it on this side. Uh, and so that is really what we should look to do. It shouldn't be a, um, 
a difficult relationship, but we're going to have some obstacles with them. We have obstacles right now with our own certifying board, the NCCPA. And um, we've had uh, obstacles with some of the, the medical boards uh, because of the nurse lobby. So, um, you know, it's, it should all come down to the patient, not, uh, not to individual egos. But um, we can't do a whole lot about that. So I'm now going to pass this to Casey. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> So now that uh, my esteemed colleagues have probably put everybody into a panic, we're going to kind of change topics and talk about what you can do because my perspective is that we can change the world, so let's talk about how to do that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and uh, what we can do in and out of clinical care. I might need to stand up because I, I'm a multitasker. Um, oh, sorry. sorry. So, oh, I don't have a mic anymore. Oh, that one's on. Okay. So, Everybody, most people know who I am, but the reason I just put this here is because what I don't have listed on here is I do practice clinical medicine two days a week, um, and every, everything on this list is, is, with the exception of the consulting, which is under $100,000 a year annual business, but the rest are multi-million dollar businesses. Um, some I own, some I manage, and I just want to, I'm very excited to be here and have the opportunity to speak because I want to hope to empower everybody that you can balance clinical medicine as well as being an entrepreneur, and I think that our profession needs more people exploring these type of opportunities because I believe it makes you better dermatology PA to be well-rounded. So let's talk a little bit about it. So uh, what are the three emotions or qualities that you would describe that would be the perfect job? You know, what would, what would be the absolute perfect feeling every day that you want to experience? Write them down right now. See if you can write down at least one. And then the question is, are you really living that experience right now? Are you having that experience every single day in your clinical practice, in your family life, in your hobbies? Are you really having, are you living the life you want to live? I'm all about goal setting because clearly I, I couldn't do what I do without having clear defined goals. And every single one of the businesses that either I manage or I own, we have a defined goal for that, for that business. Some are shorter term, some are longer term, some have much larger goals, some have smaller goals. But if you don't know what the end game is, you will never get there. And then we're just a hamster on a wheel, right? Then we're employee number 107 in the big group, and then we're, we're another Durham PA out of the... How many of us are there now? 3,000, 5,000, yeah, something so. like that? So the question is, you really need to know what the end game is for your life and for your profession. And then why? Why do you want to achieve that particular goal? Why? Like, do some self-reflecting, because otherwise you're going to be constantly frustrated with your life. So what, what is your goal? Why do you want to get there? For, for what reason? And, and are you really living your life the way that you want to live it? So. This is sort of my one uh, audience response question. How many have an idea or concept outside of clinical care that you've already explored, you're currently exploring, or you want to explore? Some sort of entrepreneurial concept that you've seriously thought about and you really actively want to pursue it, um, but you're just not sure how to go about doing it? How many here sort of have that kind of entrepreneur thought process, but just don't, don't know? Or maybe you already have acted on it. Um, let's see uh, out of our audience here. Almost a 50-50 split. That's interesting. Okay, so 50% of the people in this room have either acted on it or have a serious thought about doing something outside of clinical care um, and maybe haven't acted on it. So 
it's not going to come to you, right? You got to go get it. And it's risky and it's scary. And, you know, we, we all went to school for a long time and we have student loans and families to support. I get it. Um, but but those, those ideas that are floating in your head are ideas and they might be great, but if you don't act on them, then that's all they are is just a great idea. So this is a slide I like. Entrepreneurship is living a few years of your life like most people won't, so you can spend the rest of your life like most people can't. And what I really want to emphasize is that as passionate as I am about entrepreneurship is also as passionate as I am about clinical care, and that's why I still see patients uh, two days a week. Um, you know, in my practice in Los Angeles, it's a big group. I also am practice administrator there, um, and I won't stop doing that. I am very passionate about clinical care, but I'm also passionate about my other uh, projects and uh, ventures. So who's in? Who's going to join me on this entrepreneur uh, venture and this train that's very exciting and every day is different? What is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur is a person who organizes and operates a business taking greater than normal financial risk to do so. So, you know, that being said, financial risk, emotional risk, you name it, time sacrifices, it's all part of the package uh, of being an entrepreneur. You can't get there without, without going through that process. This is one of my favorite slides about entrepreneur. I spoke at USC graduate program business school. I was invited to speak on startups there. I love this slide because you can see the concept um, with, the, with the light bulb. That's the idea concept. 50% of the people in this room have an idea, have a concept that they want to pursue, right? So how do you get to the end? So you have initially you get very excited. It starts to spike up. And then all of a sudden you realize there's going to be some obstacles here. Is it money? Is it patents? Is it time? Is it people? And there's that reality check. All of a sudden, you start to crash with that energy. You start to kind of lose traction with your idea. You had this idea the last five years. Nothing's really happened. So then you kind of crash and burn that first little red dot there. You realize that the opportunity is just, it's not going to happen. If you can get past that, you start to execute. You start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. You're networking. You're starting to figure out how you're going to pay for your concept. Um, you're starting to kind of develop it. That is challenging. So a lot of people start to put the pieces together and they kind of crash and burn at that point. If you can get through that and you start to get all the pieces together, now you're starting to get the business and now you need to scale, right? So one of, one of our businesses is, is kind of in that stage now where we've gotten past some of these initial roadblocks and now you're trying to grow it to our ultimate uh, our goal in that company is it's to merge with a bigger company. So that's a, that becomes a challenge in and of itself, right? So this whole process is about four to five years for most people. From the idea until you start to execute and if you can get past all those obstacles into your truly sustainable company is typically about a four to five year process. So just so everybody knows that success doesn't happen overnight, even though you hear these stories and Zuckerberg and all these people out there that just have you know very successful startups coming out of Silicon Valley, it does not happen overnight. That's just the picture that they show. There's multiple LLCs, multiple corporations before you see the final corporation that goes public. You don't see all that stuff in the living room behind the scenes. Uh, this is another one of my favorite slides, right? The employee versus the entrepreneur. So the employee, 50% of the people in this room that are not really thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, they go to work, but they're, they're thinking, when are they going to get out? When's 5 o'clock so they can go home? 
it, you know, it's a serious effort to do for a short period of time, from nine to five or four days a week or whatever it is. Um, support is something they deserve. You deserve another medical assistant. You deserve more help. And income is something to be received immediately. Like you want your bonus percentage paid out every month instead of every quarter or instead of annually, right? This is an employee mindset. The entrepreneur mindset, work is something you're excited about. You cannot wait to wake up in the morning and work and check your email and check your phone and, and you know, a million times a day. You want to be connected to it all the time because it excites you. Serious effort is something that you do all the time. There is, it never stops. There is no really a vacation where you're not still even brainstorming or doing something. Support is something you create. You are supporting your team. You're not looking for people to support you. You're not looking for more assistance. You're trying to empower the rest of your team and support everybody else to be successful. And income is, comes way later. You're not making money today, tomorrow, this month, or this year. If you're a startup company, that is something down the road. So very, very different mindset. So for the 50% of you that are thinking about your concept, have you really thought about the entrepreneur mindset? Or are you still falling into that employee mindset? Because you have to change your way of thinking to really be successful. So these are the necessary character traits and skills. There's a lot. You've got to have a strong vision. The drive has to be unrelenting. Confidence beyond confidence. You've got to be comfortable selling yourself. Super tenacious. Flexible and open-minded. Blind optimism, my all-time favorite. You have to believe you're going to win no matter what and no matter what anybody tells you. You also have to be willing to break the rules, right? So, you know, we're Derm PAs. We went to school for a long time to be this. How many people are, are managing and owning multiple companies, right? So for me, no one's going to tell me that we can't do that. No one's going to tell me that PAs can't be ownerships, owners, partners in their firm. No one's going to tell me that PAs can't sit on a board of these big groups. Yes, you can. You can break all the rules. That's what rules are there to, to be broken. Um, you need to be creative logical and reasoning. Notice that a lot of these character traits are not usually in the same person. Oftentimes we have small different facets of these strengths, but not all of them. Leadership, math and forecasting, I cannot strengthen, emphasize this enough. You need to have a very strong accounting background. Most of us do not. Doctors for sure do not. So you need to partner and have very, uh, very good accounting and finance team around you. Communication, detailed and organized. Those of you 50% that have your idea in mind, do you have every single one of these traits 100% off the charts? And I can guarantee you do not. So now you need to find yourself partners who do, right? So if you're not comfortable selling yourself, you get a super strong marketing team that can sell you and sell your concept. If you're not great with math, you, get, you go get the best account and finance team that, that can do it. And you figure out, you rate yourself on these skill sets, figure out where you're weak, and you go get the strongest and the best, starting with graduate interns. Uh, sometimes is a good place to start. Not a lot of cost involved there. So who's really ready now to embark on the journey, right? 50% of you uh, had the idea, so who's ready to go? Why do you want to pursue this vision? Are you really doing it for the right reason? We just talked about that the financial part of it is not going to come right away. So if you're doing it for the money, that's not the right reason, right? If you're doing it to work for yourself, well, maybe, maybe not. You really have to have a vision about what you're doing and why you're doing it and be passionate about it. It has to be the right reason or you will not get past those obstacles. They'll break you down. Are you prepared for the financial risk? How are you gonna fund it? Are you prepared for the impact on your personal life to, to really go down the road of starting a company? Most startups fail, so are you really prepared to do nothing to, to uh, accomplish your success? Ask yourself really hard, look self-reflection, 
why, why are you gonna do this, why do you really wanna pursue this concept? Once you do identify your business concept, is it product or service focused? So what is your model gonna be? Has anybody had a similar idea, and if so, was it successful? Can you build on another similar type of business? How are you gonna really make money? This is the most, this most important. The expense is not as important at the beginning. You really need to determine how is the revenue gonna be coming. Forget the opening budget. Think about how you're gonna really have a revenue stream. Um, and have you identified a need for this service or this product? This is the number one most important. What is the end game? Is the end game to take your, this company public? Are you gonna start something? Are you gonna be the next Zuckerberg and, and the next Facebook and the next tech company? What are you gonna do? Are you looking to merge or, or become acquired? That's one of our, our plans with one of our businesses. That's a different strategy. Are you looking to carry on a legacy to pass down family generations, a restaurant or a small business in a, in a small town or something like that? Something that's gonna stay relatively small but you can pass down generation to generation. Um, same kind of thing, small business here. You really need to know what your end game is going into it and then back into your strategy. Business plan is important. A document setting out the, the business's future objectives and strategies for achieving them. Kind of a formal statement of your goals, reasons they're attainable, and plans. Also can contain some background information. This is a very rough outline. You can pull this off the internet. Um, this is, I just put this up there as an example, um, but you really need to have all of these core pieces, the mission, what you're gonna do, the products, the market, is there a trade secret, what's proprietary, how are you gonna protect what you're doing, do you need patent or intellectual property protection, how are you gonna launch it, how is the model gonna make money, and then at the end, your startup costs and your long-term plan, of course. Double your estimates of all your costs, even if you think you're being generous, double it, and double the amount of time it's gonna take. I promise you, that's reality. So pad it, go through the whole process, and then double the amount of time and the amount of money, because that's what it'll take before it becomes fully sustainable. It's doable, you just have to be realistic going into it. You sound like my home <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So funding, uh, can you fund your vision alone? Are you gonna tap into your savings? Are you gonna borrow from your parents or take an equity line of your house? What are you gonna do? Um, how, where are you gonna get them from? Will you need a loan? If you do, how are you gonna repay your loan? Looking at your model, when are you gonna be profitable enough to pay your expenses, pay yourself, and pay back that loan? Are you gonna need investor partners? I know this one well, I have 57 of them. Um, where will you find your investor partners? Is it gonna be current, your current business, like your supervising physician or other PA colleagues? Or is it gonna be friends and family? Or is it gonna be a crowdfund? Where are you gonna find your investors? Um, and how are they gonna be structured? Are they gonna be silent? Or are they gonna be more strategic? Are they gonna be more of your management team, your board of advisors? How are they gonna be involved in your business? Um, that's kind of along those same lines. And if you're gonna need multiple rounds of funding, right? So this happens oftentimes when you're building a large uh, corporation. You have to build it in stages. So if you're gonna need multiple rounds, you're not gonna have a startup company have this idea in your head and you know, call a venture capital and say, you know, I need $5 million to, to get this company going. It's not gonna happen, right? So you're gonna have to stage it. So typically it's about a year long process. You can, you can pitch for funding for about a year. You hit certain benchmarks and then you can go to do a second round. So that's a series A, series B, things like that. This is kind of venture talk. But if you're gonna need multiple rounds of funding, how are you gonna do that? Because oftentimes the uh, venture capital firms won't take small businesses seriously, so you have to start with angel and seed investors, um, and you have to kind of be familiar with all of that before going down that path.
so the napkin business. So this is for the 50% of this room who have the idea. And when you're driving or on the plane flying home uh, this afternoon or tomorrow, what is your vision and what is your market? Okay, so let's say you want to open up a satellite office. You're thinking, I want to open a satellite office. I want to be a partner in this process. How saturated is the market? What's the population in that area? What, what, if you're only going to do aesthetics, let's say, what's your target age group? Is it more female, male? Narrow it down. Is your target market 5,000 people? Do the math. How many other offices are in that area? And back into what's the average you know, um, patient going to be paying for services? What's the cost of goods? And back into is the, is the model really going to be sustainable? Always look at the revenue first before the expenses. If you cannot build the model to make money, it doesn't matter what the rent cost is. It doesn't matter what the electricity is. If you cannot build a model to make money, then there's no point in pursuing it. The budget comes last. You can, you can figure out a way to raise the money for your rent and for your initial uh, operating costs if you have a sustainable business model. Uh, we just talked about that. Always think about the revenue first. And always double, just reiterating, always double your expenses and your timeline because that's just reality. So we're getting out here the end here. What are you doing to network and market yourself now? So we all are entrepreneurs in our own way because you know, I can almost promise that 95% of the people in this room are paid a percent of, of their collections, right? So you sort of own your own business within your practice. And how are you doing better every single day? And are you really happy and achieving your goals in your current practice? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But what are you doing to network and market yourself and make yourself more productive, happier, make your practice happier, and have a more, uh, more fulfilled life? Are you controlling your own destiny or are you following the path to the least resistance? Are you just working in your practice because you've worked there for a long time? Are you just working there because it's the first offer that came your way? Um, are you just there because you, you have a family to support, you feel like it's the only option, and you're locked in there? You know, that's not the case. And, and I'm here and I'm excited to be here just to kind of open everybody's eyes up that there are other things out there, whether you're starting your own company or you're doing other you know, speaking, you're getting involved with industry, there's a million opportunities out there. And I think that what we need to do is not be afraid by some of the things going on with medicine and open our eyes up. We can still practice medicine and you can be involved in other business ventures and have a very happy and fulfilled life. And, uh, and we can be a very, very happy uh, profession as we always are rated number one. I think we can continue to be rated number one. It's a matter of finding the balance and uh, kind of opening up our minds a little bit. So success is just outside of your comfort zone. Derm PAs are qualified to do everything, not just PA-C. We can do anything. Don't make excuses. Don't hold back the 50% of the people in this room that want to have an idea. Please pursue it. Talk to me. Talk to any of the panelists. Um, there's a lot of uh, resources here who can help you. Um, success is connected with action. Successful people keep moving. That's why I can't sit still. Um, and you don't quit no matter what. You just keep on going. There are failures. I have had a million failures, and you just keep going. It, you just, one day at a time, and the next opportunity. Every failure opens your, your world up to the next opportunity, right? Don't let the fear slow you down. Become an entrepreneur. Thank you. Thanks, um, what, since we are now uh, over, what I'm going to do is hold questions. Um, it, we'll take them one-on-one -on -one, uh, after the session. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs. 
recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.